0: Good morning, friends and family, um, just beloved sisters and brothers. Um, what a wonderful day! Just to remember who Christ is and what He's done, and like I'm just rejoicing because it's Memorial Day weekend. And there's more than 10 people here, so um, just so so blessed to have you all. We have visitors, we have new faces, and I'm just praising, praising God for that. Mostly, um, I'm praising God because I have the privilege of, of, of preaching to you what is, what is probably, not even probably, what is absolutely the greatest teaching in, in all of Scripture. It is the most important thing in all of Scripture that we're going to be talking about today. It's just a revelation that is just undisputably central to what it means To be a Christian, it's so central that Martin Luther, the great reformer, he said this about it. He said, it is this doctrine which makes true Christians indeed. It is this doctrine that makes true Christians indeed. And without this doctrine, there would be no gospel. There would be no freedom for God's people. There would be no good news. If you're joining us for the first time today, welcome to Convergent Church. Uh, We've been working through a series called Freedom Through Faith. We've been walking through the book of Galatians, and today we're gonna continue that. Uh, Turn with me to Galatians 2, verses 15. Today we're gonna be focusing on verses 15 through 21, but for now we're gonna read verses 15 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, as we read through that text, you may have heard a word repeated numerous times. It is the word dikiasis in Greek, Justified. And today we're gonna be gazing at the glorious and just most important doctrine of justification through faith alone or as we call it, freedom through faith. Now, this text is probably one of the more important ones in the book of Galatians, and there's really little possibility of me doing it justice. I mean, Paul wrote the, the book of Romans, and the first half of that book deals with this doctrine of justification through faith alone. So I'm not going to pretend to be able to flush everything out for you in 45 minutes. Uh, my, my real desire is just to bring glory where glory is due. And, and at the end of the day, really to build you up in your faith, even if I have to just tear you down a little bit before we get there. I don't think it would be a, a Jameson sermon if I didn't tear you down a little bit first uh, in order to build you back up. So, but let's start with a question and a definition, and it's this. What does it mean to be justified? What does it mean to be justified? That word Dekaisis or justified is a term that's actually taken from Greek law courts. And it's the opposite of the word condemned. Last week, Dan preached about Peter and how he stood condemned before the church. As, as Peter was acting as a hypocrite, he was condemned and guilty. He was sinning against God's people and showing partiality, he was condemned. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. It means this, to justify means to declare righteous, innocent, or to acquit of wrongdoing to vindicate, exonerate, or absolve. And in order to be justified, one must be justified by an objective standard. Like if we are going to be found just in a court of law, there needs to be a law, right? There needs to be a standard by which we are justified. And and God in himself and his word has declared that people will be justified if they are righteous, if they are holy, But we run into a problem. Holiness, righteousness is a characteristic that only God possesses, right? There's a moment in the Gospels where someone comes up to Jesus and they say, good teacher, good rabbi. And Jesus looks at the man and he says, no, there is no one good but God. There is no one good but God. John Stott, we're a big fan of him around here. We love his commentaries. But he wrote this on this passage. He said this very simply, God is righteous and we are not. God is righteous, and we are not. And it's here that we enter into humanity's greatest problem. We all know that God is good. We know that God is good. Some of us suppress that truth in unrighteousness, but ultimately the truth that God is good is not lost on any of us. And also, for most of us, when we look inside ourselves, we see that we are not good, that we are not righteous, as we ought to be despite our efforts to be, and despite our efforts to convince ourselves that we are righteous, we stand condemned. And the problem that we face, and ultimately the problem that Paul will solve for us today as we work through this scripture, is this, how do we become good? How does someone who is not good become good? How do we become holy? How can we be justified exonerated, forgiven, before the eyes of a perfect holy God, or we might make it very simple, how can we be saved? How can we be saved from our condemnation? Well, here's our first point, looking at verses 15 and 16. It is not by birth, and it is not by burden, but by true faith. It's not by birth, it's not by burden, but by true faith. And in our text today, Paul begins by saying this. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And he begins by addressing native-born Jews, those who've been born into the family of Israel to which Paul belongs. And he contrasts them with Gentile sinners. So you have these two groups, right? You have natural-born Jews and you have Gentile sinners. And Paul highlights these two categories really to show how ironic it is that the Jews who are native born would somehow think that they are justified because of their family of origin. Now, depending on how um, familiar you are with the Old Testament, you know, we're at various stages of that, but for those of you who know your Old Testament, we know this about the Israelites, they were pretty abysmal at keeping God's law. They were pretty bad, they were pretty bad. They would have a season of faithfulness and they would go astray. They'd have a season of, of apparent righteousness, and they would walk into sin culturally and nationally. And so ultimately, they have this pretty bad track record, almost, almost as bad as the Detroit Lions. That's how, that's how bad we're talking today, right? They had an abysmal track record of being image bearers of God. And yet the Jews believe that their family heritage are, are being born under the promises of God. Heirs to the legacy of the patriarchs of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And ultimately, their nearness to God, their proximity to God, somehow justified them in the eyes of God. They relied on their birth and their heritage to justify them before an all-knowing God. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't point out at this moment that this is not just a problem that we see with Jews. This is also a problem that at times we see in the church, in Christ's church. You know, some people, and I'm not naming anybody in particular, but a kind of person, um, some people grow up in the Christian church and they believe that because they grew up near God's grace, because they grew up hearing Bible stories, praying at dinner, going to church on Sundays, remembering the Sunday school stories, participating in the flannel graphs, right? They believe that because they grew up in proximity to God's grace, that they have actually received God's grace. And my aim is not ultimately to cast doubt on anybody's faith, but only to give a cautionary warning to those who have lived long in the household of the church. And the warning is this, family heritage cannot save us. Who you were born as cannot save you. David writes this in Psalm 51, four through five. He says this, against you, he's speaking to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is saying, look, from the moment I was born, I was in sin. My mother was in sin before me. I was conceived in iniquity. All people are born into sin and ultimately come from one family and one heritage, that of Adam and Eve. They are our first parents. And no one can be saved by merit of their parents or their heritage if they're condemned by the curse of their first parents. I'm gonna pick on Dan here for a minute. He's my pastor, my pastor friend and he can. So Dan... Cannot be saved by the righteousness of Larry and Darlene. Right? He cannot be saved by the righteousness of Larry and Darlene if he's condemned by the sin and the curse of Adam and Eve. If his first parents brought him into his curse, his heritage cannot bring him out of that curse. You know, this last Saturday I, I buried my father, and um, I remember I was sitting there and I was I was holding I was holding his cold, cold dead hand, and I was looking at his body in a casket. And I remember thinking, knowing that I was going to preach this this text, if my hope was in who I was born, if my hope was in my family and my heritage, I would be absolutely undone at this point. Because while my father was a God-fearing man, he was a good dad, but he was a sinner through and through, just like I am. And one thing that we teach our boys in our house is that When they stand before an almighty God and and, and they give an account for their sins, they are not going to be justified in the back of their father's pastorate, right? Pastor's kids don't get free rides into heaven, right? They don't. Each man, each woman, each child will stand before God in their own merit and answer to God for their actions. And the Bible shows us that being born into a Christian or non-Christian home or a Jewish or non-Jewish home cannot save us. Being born into a Christian home doesn't justify you any more than if you're born in a garage, it'll make you a Tesla. Like it, it, it doesn't work that way. There's no national, familial, or cultural salvation. That's Paul's first point. But he moves on to show us that not only can our birth not save us, but also our burden. Our works, our effort, our striving to live righteously cannot save us either. He says this, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. And further down, he says, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. See, the Jews believe that being born under the covenants of promise, or the the promises of God, and rigorously striving to keep all of God's commands, that they would be justified in God's eyes. They would be good in God's eyes. That their strict obedience of the law, and we say the law, there's actually 615 what we call mitzvahs, 615 commandments and things that God forbids that the Jews would live under, not just the Ten Commandments, but that they would strictly obey the law, the sum total of God's commands, and their works of the law. So acts done in obedience to that law, right? Things like tithing, things like loving your neighbor, those kinds of things, that those things could somehow, in some way, justify them. In order to be justified, forgiven in this way, the Jews would have had to constantly, constantly strive and work, being ever diligent to obey that everything that God says to do and to not do everything that God says not to do. They would have to be ever diligent to keep God's law. Fools. Fools. Absolute foolishness. It's it's an impossible task. Really, only a madman, like completely out of touch of reality and who he is, would would look at the breadth of God's law and everything he commands and everything he forbids and say, I'll obey it fully. Only a crazy person would do that. And my heart breaks because I know Christians and I know non-Christians who live this way. They're totally devoted to a legalistic code of conduct that they believe will somehow exonerate them when they stand before God. They believe that it will somehow justify them when they stand before God. Now, they could be Christian, -Christian, non-Christian, it might be based on scripture, it might not, but the point is, they believe that the code of conduct is what saves them. They believe that the rules are what save them. They'll say things like, I read my Bible every morning, and I fast each week. I pray without ceasing, I'm never not talking to God. And I tithe 10%. I attend church every Sunday and I serve in children's ministry. I take meals to the sick and I disciple my children in the ways of the Lord and I never swear and I don't smoke and my body is a temple. They'll say all these things and my friends hear me. I've lived this way. I have lived this way. And it's a recipe for sheer misery and failure. It is a, a Sheer misery and failure. The Bible describes it as grasping for wind. Grasping for something that we can never ultimately hold onto. It's endless striving with no rest for our soul and no forgiveness for our failures. But I need you to hear me because this is a nuanced point. All these things I just mentioned, they're good things. Praying is good. Reading your Bible is good. Giving to the church is good. Serving the church is good. Taking care of the widows and the orphans and the sick in the church is good. Praying without ceasing, these are all good. Discipling your children, these are all good things. They reflect a good and holy God. But here's the thing, the reflection of God is not the substance of God. The reflection is not like the substance. It's it's kind of like the moon, right, right? The moon reflects the light of the sun, but it has no light in and of itself. That is what we are. And I want to encourage you to continue to do these things, continue to do these good things, but hear me, these good things do not justify you before God. These good things do not justify you. Trying to live up to God's standard in a religious way won't justify you because ultimately you cannot do it. You cannot live up to his standard. Here's the thing. On my best day, on my very best day, like I'm talking, like I'm batting nine out of 10, right? On my best day, I have sinned before I've had my morning coffee. On my best, trust me, I have three boys. I've sinned before coffee. That's my, my best day. And so no matter what the rest of my day looks like, I begin my day in sin. And so the good actions I have throughout the rest of my day cannot undo that breaking of God's law, and if it's not an act of my hands, it's a word of my mouth that is hurtful or damaging to another person, and if I manage to control my hands, and I manage to control my mouth, guess what? My thoughts condemn me. The things I think but don't say also condemn me, and so I'm back where I started. My birth can't save me who I am, My ability to keep God's law and the burden of it cannot save me. Neither of these things will exonerate me. And I stand here as a sinner before a sinless and a holy God. So what means can save me? What merit can save me? Well, Paul speaks it beautifully and plainly right here. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. We we find God's means of justifying sinners, proclaiming them innocent, and it's not by their pedigree or who they were born as, and it's not by their perseverance or how hard they can work at keeping a strict legal code. It's by faith, simple trust, trust in the reality that, look, Jameson cannot save himself. Trust that in the face of our condemnation, God chose to show mercy to condemned sinful people. Trust that on a cross, God sacrificed his only begotten and sinless son in our place so that Jews and Gentiles, natural born Christians, and those who are far away from God, those who are near to God, and those who are far away from God could be Justified in his sight, exonerated before God, made righteous before him. The belief that Jesus suffered the condemnation that I deserve so that I could obtain the freedom that I did not observe. This is the faith that the Bible speaks of, and I I need you to hear this because sometimes we get it a little crooked. Faith is a means of salvation. Faith is a means of salvation, but faith finds its hope, its center, its strength, its anchor in the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. Faith is a means by which we are justified, but the merit, the source of our justification is Jesus Christ himself. And I say this because sometimes we get it sideways. Even as Christians, we can be deluded We can say, if I'm just faithful, if I just do this, if I just trust enough, if I just, and we ultimately end up worshiping our faith instead of the faithful one. And it's very subtle. It's very subtle. And we'll get to more of what this faith looks like in our last point, but for now, I I wanna talk a little bit about an argument that Paul deals with against this doctrine of justification by faith alone. And here's our next point. True faith produces neither lawlessness nor legalism. True faith produces neither lawlessness nor legalism. Let's read verses 17 and 18. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Here's the question. Does justification through faith produce more sin? Does justification through faith produce more sin? You see, in Paul's day, there's people, especially the Pharisees and the Judaizers, raised an argument against the doctrine of justification through faith alone. And the argument went something like this. If we remove the obligation to keep the Mosaic law and tell people they have right standing with God through trusting in Jesus, it will produce more sinfulness, more lawlessness, more running from God, and less right living. They would say, if we remove the condemnation of the law, people will not fear God and they will have no reason to obey God. If we remove the condemnation of the law, people will not fear God and will have no reason to obey him. And the Jews even went as far as to say this. If Jesus, who was the one who initially preached the doctrine of justification through faith alone, if through him sin abounded or, or more sin came from this, then the sinless son of God was ultimately a servant of sin and not a servant of a holy God. And and this is a serious accusation, and Paul says, certainly not. This is not true. He adamantly refutes this argument. And the problem with the argument and the things that the Jews, these people who grew up in the close to God, the proximity to God, but without having saving faith, they couldn't understand is that Their argument did not account for the reality of what happens when someone is justified. When someone is made right with God. You see, the Jews lived in mere proximity, but through faith in Jesus, God was doing something that was completely foreign to the Jews. Completely foreign. Because when a person is justified by faith, when they confess that they are a sinner and they need a Savior, And they they call on Christ and say, Jesus, save me. There's a number of miraculous things that happens, right? There's things like regeneration, there's redemption, there's adoption, there's salvation, there's there's all these different shuns, right? But I think the most beautiful one and the most miraculous and probably even just mysterious is, is the habitation of God, What I mean by that is Jesus himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, comes and lives inside someone who is justified by faith. Jesus makes our life his home. He comes and he habitates with us. Maybe you've heard the term tabernacles with us. He comes and he lives In us now, I'm not a farmer, but I watch a lot of YouTube, so I I know what I'm talking about. Um, I I understand that when you want to train, right, a particularly uh, stubborn ox, you will yoke it with an ox that has learned to obey. You'll You'll yoke it with an animal that has learned to obey, and the hope is that by walking with this other animal that has learned to obey that the the one that is stubborn will learn as well. Well, this is what it's like when Jesus comes to live in us. We're yoked with him. Another analogy is that of a, a husband and a wife. We are wed to Jesus. We become one flesh. And the presence of Jesus in our lives is an active presence. It's not as Jesus comes and lives in our lives. He's like, cool, I'm here. Go on your merry way. No, he's active. He's working in us. He's moving with us. And just as the strong ox and the obedient ox leads the weak and disobedient ox, so Jesus leads us as he lives in us. Jesus said this in Matthew 11, verses 29 and 30. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest For your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what it's like to be justified, to be inhabited by the spirit of God and by the presence of Christ. We find rest for our souls where we once had a strict legalistic code that condemned us. And Paul refuses to rebuild a system of justification where that strict adherence to the Mosaic law is said to have saving faith, knowing that if he holds himself to that standard, he will constantly be condemned. Because every time he looks to the law, he will see that he has broken it and he will be condemned over and over and over again. So instead, Paul chooses neither legalism or lawlessness he instead chooses a lifestyle that produces neither and here with Jesus living inside of him he finds rest for his soul and and this is what Paul is going to talk about as we come to our final point here let's read verses 19 and 21 paul says this for through the law i died to the law so that i might live to god I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Here's our last point true faith brings life and liberty through God's love. True faith brings life and liberty through God's love. You see, Paul understands the purpose of the law, which was something that was completely lost on the Pharisees and the Judaizers. He understands that before we know Christ, before we're justified, the law has a completely different purpose than it does afterwards. It has a completely different purpose before we know Christ than when we know Christ. Paul wrote this in Romans 5, 20 through 21. Open your ears, listen to this. He said, He said, Now the law came in, or the law was given, now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul sees that this law that the the Judaizers are so strictly adhering to has two functions. Before we know Christ, the purpose of the law is to destroy us. That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to show sinful Jameson that Jameson is a sinner. That's the point. And so when I look at it without Christ living inside of me, my natural feeling is I'm condemned. I stand guilty. That's its purpose. But why? Why is that its purpose before Christ? It's so that dead and condemned individuals would cry out for relief from our destruction and see that we need a Savior so that dead men and women would plead for life and and shackled souls would cry out for freedom and be granted it as Jesus comes and lives in us. That's the purpose of the law before Christ. This is the substance of Paul's faith. He says, look, Paul's dead. The law killed him. Paul's dead. Anything good that you now see in Paul It's not Paul, it's Jesus. Jesus died, or or Paul died, and in his place, Jesus brought about a new creation, a union of Paul and Christ with Christ as the head. And, And this is why the Bible is so adamant that while the law cannot save us, it must not be thrown away because it does still serve a purpose after salvation. It serves a purpose after justification because as Christians, With Christ living inside of us, we no longer look at God's law and we see that it saves. We don't look at God's law and go, I can do that, for sure. We don't look at that law and say, if I just keep this, I'll be saved. And we also don't look at it and see that the law destroys us either, because we have Christ who perfectly obeyed the law, stood in our place, and we have forgiveness before a holy God. So what's the purpose of the law? It is now our guide. It is now our guide. It doesn't save us, and it doesn't destroy us. It guides us with Christ living in us. So we no longer need to fear it. We no longer need to refrain from attempts to live by it because Jesus, who kept the law, lives in us. So as people who strive to live by God's word, we no longer find our justification in whether or not we obey it perfectly, but that Jesus obeyed it perfectly in our place. And we have hope that as Jesus lives in us and as we look at the law, he will lead us into greater acts of obedience. We don't place our faith in our faithfulness, but in the faithful one place my faith in my ability to keep God's law, but in Jesus' ability to keep it for me. So now, in everything, in, in eating, and in drinking, and sleeping, and in rising, and going, and in staying, and speaking, and in silence, in following, and in failure, I place my hope in Jesus at all times, even as I follow his law as a path in a way to live. And I just, as I was writing this sermon, I just felt like someone needs to hear this. Like, brothers and sisters, you're free. You are free. And you're free from a lot of things. You're free from striving, first of all. You're free from that, that rigorous, overbearing, soul-crushing desire to be perfect. You're free from false thoughts of perfection because the Bible tells us we will not be perfect to this side of life but that we will be glorified and made perfect as we go to be with Christ. You're also free from fatalism. You're free from looking at God's law and saying, I could never do it, so why do it, right? Because we know that Jesus told us, if you love me, obey my commandments. You're free from hopelessness because Jesus lives in you and he's working in you. He's active and he's powerful. Like the same power that justified you before a holy God is the same power that's now working in you to produce further righteousness, further good. You're free from wandering alone because you're a part of a church where everyone's a sinner and everyone fails And you're part of a family that can look at one another and say, look, you're free to bring your failure to the church because we all live on an equal playing field. Like like your pastors are not less sinful than you. Like we, we, we are sinners. There's an equal playing field. There's Jesus and then there's all the rest of us. And so none of us have to be ashamed of that. We can bring that openly to one another. It's what we call gospel transparency here at Convergent Church. You're free from fearing God's judgment. God laid his wrath upon his son, Jesus, not on you. He laid it on Jesus, and if you place your faith in him, you have nothing to fear from God. Anything you now experience is not wrath, it's not anger, it's not your destruction, it's the furthering of righteousness in your life as God uses all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God disciplines those whom he loves. And so when we experience trials or suffering, we can know that Jesus actively in us and our Father who's who's looking at us is Furthering our sanctification, furthering our Christ-likeness through these things. And he's not bringing them into our lives because he hates us or he's angry at us or he's disappointed in us. He just wants his children to be more Christ-like. And that's why these things are coming. And you know, because we can look at God's law and see that it neither justifies us or condemns us, we're we're. We're free from fearing God's word. Like, I know Christians who will go months and months and months from not reading their Bible, and it starts like, okay, I miss a couple days, and then I miss a week, and then I miss two weeks. Now I've missed a month, and now I think God hates me because I haven't read my Bible. And if I look at the Bible, that Bible is gonna condemn my actions, and so I don't wanna do that. And so now it's three months, and you don't have to do that. You can look at God's law. You can actually invite that conviction with hope that Jesus is working in your life, that he wants you to to see that. James puts it this way. He says, we can now look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law that brings freedom, and we can persevere in that because Christ lives in us, and we don't have to look away. We don't have to convince ourselves that we're saved by our own obedience, but by Jesus's. Again, I'm not an expert, but I watch a lot of YouTube. I was, watching, um, I was watching rock climbers the other day, and I was just thinking as I was working on this sermon, I watched these men, they were going up a, I mean, thousand foot sheer cliff. And, and at first I was like, there's no way I would ever do that. But as I'm watching them go up this cliff, I'm, I'm watching them, they're taking this anchor point, and as they move up, they're moving it to these different p- places, this cleft in the rock, right? Now these men, they're actively climbing. They're actively doing the work. They're climbing up the mountain, but their hope is not in their ability to climb. Like they're going to run into times in this climb where they're not going to be able to move forward and they're gonna have to figure something out. Ultimately, their hope is in that anchor that's in the rock, not in their ability to climb. Their hope is in that anchor because if that anchor holds, they're good. But if that anchor lets go, they're done. They're 1,000 feet in the air. They can't climb down. It's over. I even watched as these men, they're halfway through the climb. Like they've got a whole another, probably five or six hours. They take out these sleeping bags, right? And they hang them on the side of the mountain. And they're hooked into this anchor in the rock. And they're dangling off, eating peanuts like there's no problem. And I'm just like, what's wrong with you? And it dawned on me we can rest in Christ that way. We can rest that the anchor will hold. And so even in the midst of the climb of life, as we're feeling it, trials and suffering, and all these things are coming onto us, we can rest knowing that the anchor will hold. The anchor is Jesus and he's not letting go of us. He's holding us. And so when we fall, we don't have to stay down. We can arise. We can repent, we can get up, we can run to God, we can run back to this God who forgives us and we can trust in the work of Christ, not in our own works. And why? Well, because Paul makes it very, very clear. He says this, because we live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. I want you to think about that. What a miraculous and glorious and wonderful reality that the Son of God who went to the cross because of your sin loves you. He loves you. He loves you and he's proved his love and his faithfulness once and for all by dying in your place. He has justified you And he lives in you as proof of that justification. Now he's actively working to strengthen both your faith in him and your obedience to him. My friends, what does this mean for us? It means we do not have a license to sin, but the pressure to perform is off. Hear me. The pressure to perform is off. You can rest even as you climb. You can rest even as you work in the finished work of Christ, in this Jesus who loves you, who's not disappointed in your efforts, who's not disillusioned with who you are and who is not out to destroy you. No, he says, my yoke is easy. Take it upon yourself. My burden is light. And if if Jesus justifies you and Jesus lives in you and he strengthens you and supplies you with power to live for him, I just want you to think about this. What can condemn you? What could condemn you? What obstacle is too great for the Christ that lives in you? What sin is too enormous that Jesus can't conquer it? I mean, if he justifies us, why do we cower from these things? Why do we faint? Why do we place our hope in in other things other than Christ? He's the one who will hold us. He is the anchor. He has saved us. He will see us through. He will take us to the end. And so my friends, don't place your hope in anything else, not in your birth, not in your ability to keep God's law. Don't live legalistic, but don't live lawless either because when we place our faith in these other things, we do what Paul says here at the end. He says, we nullify the grace of God because when I place my hope in anything other than the anchor that holds me, I'm saying, ultimately, I will save myself. Let's not do that. No, in all things, do not place your hope in any means, not birth, not works. Don't even have faith in your own faith. But in Christ who is faithful, the one who merits your justification, and in him alone, if you hold him true as your anchor, you will be a Christian in every sense of the word. Let's pray. Jesus, we're just so, so thankful for you. Jesus, you came and you died for us when we were still your enemies. And Lord, what you've asked of us is that we place our our faith and our hope in you alone, not in our birth and not in our works, not even in our ability to be faithful, but in your ability to be faithful to us. Lord, I pray this prayer over my brothers and sisters today. Even as many of us struggle with, with different things, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to remember that you are the faithful anchor that will hold us to the end. You are the one who justifies us and for the rest of our lives, even as we, we work and, and, and we run and we strive and we want to be better Christians, we want to be better sons and daughters of God, let us realize that, that you love us completely. You will not love me three months from now when I'm a better Christian, but you love me wholly and totally now. Help us to see that and to rest in that, that your love is not a fickle love, it does not fail, it does not falter, it does not end, it is everlasting and it is total. So Lord, as we run for you, as we as we look to be good sons and daughters of God, out of love for you, God, let us hope in you in everything. And Lord, when my brothers and sisters fail and when they fall, help them to get up, help them to repent, help them to look forward and not say, you know what? He'll love me if I get it right tomorrow and I'll help them to stand and say no. He loves me now and so I will move forward. Lord God, we need you. This Christian life is long and it's hard and it's a tough climb from the bottom of the mountain to the top but Lord, we know that if you're in us and you're working in us and your power is moving us forward we will reach that mountaintop one day and we will be with you. So, Lord, we trust that you will hold us to the end, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful that we have a faithful Savior. We don't deserve you, but we have you. And, Lord, that is cause for singing and celebration. Lord, we just say thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.